Hello and welcome back to the Scottish Rugby Podcast. I am Cammy Black. This week, um, it's another pre-season special. We'll be talking to Owen Weatherhead, team manager with Berwick Rugby Club. And we're also spe- speaking to Lana Skeldon, who is the vice-captain with Watsonian Women's and also Scotland uh, International Hooker. Um, first, though, we've got a very special guest, uh, Damien Hughes, an organisational psychologist who's been working with Gregor Townsend since he took over as Scotland boss. Damien has a new book out called The Barcelona Way, which is looking at the culture behind the success at Barcelona Football Club. Um, It's a very interesting read. I'm about a quarter of the way through it myself. Um, It's worth looking at Damien's other books, particularly uh, around creating winning mindsets. I think if you read those, um, you get quite an interesting insight into the work that Damien does. And when you put it together with the sorts of things we hear from Uh, out of the Scotland team, you get an idea of the sorts of practices that Gregor Townsend is putting in place. Um, Obviously, we're not going to speak to Damien about uh, his work with Scotland, um, because that's confidential, Um, but um, the chat that we've had with them, you get a real insight into um, what it takes to create a a, a winning culture in sporting teams. Uh, We're joined now by uh, Damien Hughes, um, an organisational psychologist uh, who's written lots of books on creating winning mindsets um, and also is currently working with the Scotland rugby team. Um, Damien, you're first time on the podcast and we always ask people what what club socks they would wear if they were selected for the Barbarians. Now, I know you're from the North West, so you are allowed rugby league socks. (laughs) <laughs> oh brilliant well first of all thanks for having me on Cammy. it's uh it's a real pleasure to uh to come and chat with you and appreciate the invitation um so i'm i'm made up to be here in terms of uh club socks um i'm gonna go for um i'd probably choose um i'm gonna choose warrington wolves and uh the other reason for that is that uh i worked in rugby league for a long time um and that was the club where i spent longest uh working with them so i was there for um the uh tony smith's first five years of his uh, of his reign at the club so uh yeah i've got a lot a lot of affection for rugby league so i'll choose them if that's okay that's absolutely fine were you working there sort of as an organizational psychologist at the time yes yeah so um i've known tony for a, a long time so uh my background is in um, is in organisational psychology. I'm a professor at the at the Manchester Met University. There, uh, I specialise in sort of organisational psychology and change. And um, I'd but my um, I come from a sporting background. My dad was a boxing coach, so I'd grown up in uh, in sport. And then I'd worked as a uh, as a youth team coach in football. So I'd worked at Manchester United for a few years as well before I'd pursued the academic route. And yeah. then uh, I was friends with Tony and then went into rugby league uh, from that from that perspective. So was it, that was what I was interested in knowing sort of uh, for, from, from the beginning, was it that you saw in sport sort of the, the ability for change and creating these mindsets and that's what moved you into organisational psychology or was it that you, you were sort of in organisational psychology and you thought there's a lot of stuff in sport that can be applied here? Uh, probably... Uh, the first uh, way around Cammy. So um, my dad was a boxing coach. So I, I, I grew up in a boxing gym um, in uh, inner city Manchester. So um, it's officially classed. This isn't something to boast about, but it's officially classed as Europe's third poorest district, the area where the boxing club was based. And um, so I grew up in uh, in that gym and I saw my dad taking a lot of kids from, uh, from the street, kids who, 
who just needed somewhere to go. And um, I watched over the years that he took he took five guys um, for uh, that had never laced on a pair of gloves right the way through to become professional world champions. And there was numerous others that sort of reached the Olympics and um, won European titles and British titles and things like that. So I so I grew up very much at his um, at his side watching him do it, and I realised um, from quite a young age that. Technical coaching is, is of course, incredibly valuable and physical coaching and things like that. But the mental side of, um, of it was huge. Um, and that really developed an interest for me in terms of psychology in general. So I went and pursued that at night school. Um, in, and then it was when I got into the subject, organisational psychology and how teams and cultures uh, come together and how people adapt to change really then started to intrigue me. So I went more into team sports and looking at it from that point of view. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, I've read quite a few of your books now and a lot of them, they draw on experiences from the world of sport. What what do you think it is about sport that, that provides you with so many good examples? Yeah, it, um, well, first of all, thank you for, uh, for making the time to read the books. I, uh, I am grateful. Um, sport's one of those... Um, uh, one of those subjects where I think people like it because of the purity of it in terms of you know who wins and you know who loses. So um, so it becomes very easily to, uh, it becomes easy to go and look at the successful teams and work out why are they successful and what do they do. So I think people like it in that regard. I'm often really circumspect though about uh, hammering too much the parallels between sport and anything that you class as business or other organisations. And the only reason I'm a little bit more wary about uh, labouring the parallels are because I think there's a lot more things that are different as well. So just to give you two very quick examples, bullying can happen a lot easier in a sporting environment than what you'd ever get away in a business environment. And you can mask it in terms of, uh, in terms of the physical nature of the job. The second difference is the fact that you can get rid of people a lot easier in sporting environments um, than what you can do in a working environment. Employment law wouldn't allow you to do it. So I encourage anyone that reads the books to say, don't read it thinking that that sport has all the answers. I think it has some things, but the point I emphasise to people is I'm talking about the people aspect. They're people that just happen to work in sport. And I think that's where it can be really fascinating because like you say, you can look at the winners and understand what is it that they're doing to be consistently successful. Yeah, and then, then the new book, The Barcelona Way, um, which I'll confess I'm about a quarter of the way through at the minute. Um, right. It's a really interesting read. Um, what was it about, because you've, you've covered, um, touched on Barcelona in, in your previous book, so what was it about Barcelona that made you want to sort of delve deeper into the, the way that they've worked in their history? Yeah, so the idea came around about three years ago that uh, my publisher asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book on the subject of culture. And I said, I'd love to do something on that. That's very much around my uh, my own um, uh, interest and, and my own training. And they said, well, we'd be interested in doing a book on culture and explaining what it is, but doing it through the lens of a sports team. Now, that makes it a lot more difficult because I then narrowed it down to who are the sports organisations that have use culture as a competitive advantage and there's only three that you could that are on record as saying that they've used it and then have had considerable success so the three are the new zealand uh, rugby union team 
the New England Patriots, and then the third one is Barcelona. So that was where the interest, the publisher said, we'd like you to do it around Barcelona. So the idea behind it was that uh, 10 years ago, um, Barcelona uh, had, had gone through a period of about two years of um, turmoil where they'd won the European Cup under the Dutch coach Frank Rijkaard and then they'd gone into free fall for the next two years. And during that period, the, um, the board um, sat down and said, rather than panic about this, let's look at how we can establish culture as a competitive advantage. So they gave themselves 12 months to go and look and research into what it is. Now, the first thing is there's five different types of culture. When people use that phrase culture, they, what they don't articulate is there's, is there's five different types of culture that can emerge in any team. So the first type of culture that often emerges is what you call a star culture. And this is where you, where, where you bring in uh, the most talented players, give them the highest salaries, provide them with the best facilities, and you hope that somehow that will all come together uh, to be successful. Now, what the research says is when it works, it's spectacular, but there's also just as many examples of when it goes wrong, the failure there is spectacular. The second type of culture you get is what they call an autocratic culture, and this is very much where it's driven by one powerful individual. It's often like a founding father or a head coach that's very charismatic, and it's almost their way or the highway. So you think of somewhere like Manchester United under Ferguson, take him out of the equation and the vacuum and the confusion that's followed in the five years since he retired is, you know, is there for all to see. The third type of culture you get is a bureaucracy. And this is where it's often run by middle managers, people that are, so it's run by committees. And you know the old saying that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. <laughs> so it's often about lots of different competing interests there. The fourth way you get is an engineering culture, and this is where you bring in technical expertise and specialists. So you bring in people that are brilliant at doing specific aspects of the job, and you hope that if everyone delivers that to the best of their ability, the cumulative effect is significant. So again, a good example of that is probably the model that Arsenal Football Club have pursued under Wenger for the last 10 years. But it's the fifth way that, that really intrigues, because this is the fifth type of culture is what's called a commitment culture. And a commitment culture says we're driven by a really clear sense of purpose and a really clear set of behaviours that underpin it. Now, this is what Barcelona said. That's the model that we're going to pursue. Now, all the research says that if you pursue a commitment culture, you tend to be, on average, around 22% more profitable and successful than the other four cultures. There's other research that says people will stay in a commitment culture even when they're offered salary increases of up to 36% higher from another organisation. So a commitment culture is almost where doing good and being good come together. So that was the model that Barcelona decided to pursue 10 years ago, and that coincided with their appointment of Pep Guardiola. So what I wanted to do in the book was to tell um, the story of what a commitment culture is and how Guardiola implemented that when he came into uh, Barcelona and what's happened in the 10 years since almost bears it out that they've won eight of the last 10 league titles. They've won the European Cup three times. They've become World Club champions three times in that same period. And they've had turnover of staff, but the, but the, the commitment culture is, all, is, is, is there and continues despite whoever comes in. 
so the idea is about how so how could people read it and take some of those ideas into their own organization or team yeah it's it's quite interesting sort of the i suppose from from a sporting point of view the ruthlessness of that culture in terms of when someone doesn't fit in and i'm, I'm thinking of slatan ibrahimovic yeah. as, the, as the example there of this is a big money signing didn't fit in with with that commitment culture and then was actually sold on by barcelona at a loss so um yeah well i mean to answer that cami i mean the zlatan example is um is 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 really pertinent the first thing that a commitment culture requires is you have to articulate well what do i do so it's not enough just to say oh we've got a commitment culture you have to say these are the rules like these are the behavioral rules that are going to be important now the key phrase here is behaviours, not values, because values are almost an abstract term that people can hide behind. These are behaviours, because behaviours are something that are very evident that people can see. So one of the guys I interviewed was a guy called Chiki Bagiristain, who was the uh, director of football at Barcelona at the time. He's now at Manchester City. And he gave me this fantastic phrase where he said, he said, your talent will get you as far as the dressing room door here. How you behave decides if we'll keep you in that dressing room or not. So my question was, well, what are the behaviours? And they have three. So the first behaviour is humility. They say, when you come to this organisation, there's a good chance you're going to be a highly fated, multimillionaire, superstar footballer. Do not come in here telling us about your status symbols or your success. Because if you do that, that indicates that you lack humility. And if you lack humility, that means that you can't learn and therefore get better. The second behaviour they have is uh, hard work. They say, you've worked hard to get this far. This isn't the end. This is just the end of the beginning. So you continue the hard work. And then the third behavior they have is put the team first. So if there is ever a clash between what's right for you and what might be right for the team, choose what's right for the team every time. So they're the rules of engagement. They say, you want to be a member of this club? They're the rules that you have to sign up to. And then if you, I mean, that phrase commitment, by definition, you have to commit to it. And what they say at Barcelona is there's no half measures. You don't say, oh, I like that bit, but not that bit, or I'll choose one that I do like, but I'll ignore the other. They say you commit to all of it. And if you choose not to, they say what happens by definition is the FIFO effect kicks in. And the FIFO effect translates as fit in or f off. But you don't get to but you don't get to pick the bits you like. You fit in here or f off and go to another club. So what they did with Zlatan, to go back to your, to your example, was they brought him in for 70 million euros. And he tells the stories himself that his first day of training, Guardiola gives him the, key, the keys to his club car, it's an Audi. And he says, what's this for? He says, I know you've got fancy sports cars. He said, but don't drive them into training. That's not who we're at. Uh, that's not what we stand for. Drive this club car into training every day. You're here to come and work. And he agrees to it, except the first time he gets dropped, he says, oh, I'm not bothering driving my club car in. Then he drives his Enzo Ferrari in, and it creates a huge furore. There's another occasion where they ask him to accommodate the team by playing in a different position because they have injuries, and he refuses to do it. Again, he uses a car analogy himself. He says, I'm a Ferrari, and you're going to drive me like I'm a Fiat. So eventually, they got behavioral examples where he just wasn't prepared to fit in with what they'd asked him to do. And what they said was, you don't change the, a commitment culture doesn't change to accommodate any individual, however powerful and successful and talented they are. You don't change the culture for one individual. 
they you, you sign up to it. So what I mean, when I interviewed some of the guys around it, it was really fascinating because it wasn't personal. They all spoke about Zlatan really highly. He said, oh, great bloke, really talented, you know, really enjoyed his company. He just didn't fit in our culture. He'll be successful at other places, but just not here. That's not what we stand for. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what, what they stand for, that was the other sort of interesting take from the book is this idea, and it sort of started with Johan Cruyff and something that Pep Guardiola continued is this big picture, and not just, you know, about you know winning football matches. It's what does the club mean? And this idea engaging, that, that means engaging with the history of the club, the history of the region, um, so far as obviously um, Johan Cruyff famously choosing um, a Catalan name for his son and, and fighting yeah. to get, you know, and fighting to get... Um, get him named as such um in spain so is that that key to the commitment culture then sort of engaging with the history and and the wider impact of a performance yeah very much so barcelona is 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 really rich in that sort of historical and cultural significance so what the football club is about is representing the very best of catalonia to the rest of the world so this was one of christ's points about about the style of football it's not just about winning because he said, because if you only value winning and 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 doing it in an unattractive, ugly way, he says, what happens if you don't win? You've lost on both counts. You've sat through some miserable experiences of watching a football team play and you still didn't win. And he said, so why don't you? It's not an either or. It's a both and. We're going to play really attractive football that the rest of the world can admire. And we'll try and win at the same time. But we will represent the very best of what Catalonia is about. Now, I know that um, in terms of some of the work that I do with other teams, uh, and you know, and I'll include some of the work that um, I've done with Scotland on this cameo, is that the, this current Scotland setup is about representing the very best of Scotland to the rest of the world and doing it in a, in a way where those, the kind of behaviours that we've identified are on display and trying to, and trying to win but do it in a certain way that represents those qualities and all great teams, uh, organisations, sports teams who, uh, uh, or whoever have to have this sense of purpose and what the success looks like for them. Yeah, and that, that was the other thing is it, it sort of linked to that is this concept. I think it was Cruyff again that coined the, the phrase Madriditis and this obviously they, they're, they're based on very much the star culture and and this idea that you Barcelona at one point was suffering from Madriditis and sort of very much looking at what the other side were doing, and it seems key to successful teams is you just focus on what what you do best in delivering what you're there to do, rather than worrying about what the other guy's doing. Yeah, exactly. So so Cruyff was the architect of all this when he came in originally in the seventies when he signed for the club from uh, from Ajax. But but he said you can't be successful if you're always if you, uh, if you present yourself as the victim, because, and, and he said that had almost become inculcated in the Barcelona culture of, yes, but, and then it was pointing to Madrid, Madrid are more powerful, Madrid are more politically influential, Madrid are this. And he said, as a club, you've got that victim mentality that means that you can never really be sustainably successful. Let's focus on what we stand for and what we're about, and let's focus on our own, our own game and our own performance rather than worrying about anybody else. So you're right that that that, that kind of mentality uh, is a big part of what the commitment culture is, Cammy. 
I'm also wondering, just because obviously we're a we're, we're a fan based blog and, and a fan based podcast, um, and and Barcelona fans, um, I think have had a difficult relationship in the past with the club, particularly when Cruyff came in, um, the booing jeer if they didn't like the way the team was playing, and I think it can be hard for fans to know how to react and sort of almost buy into a culture that a team's trying to create. Is is there any sort of behave because we we talk about this on the podcast in the past, and you get the range of people who will you know. Uh, outright sort of like dogs abuse at players and then the other side of that is people who just say well you support the team no matter what and you should never be critical is is there sort of do fans have a responsibility to sort of try and create a culture for the players to respond to as well i think it's um i think it's um i think it's a bit of both to be honest Cammy. i think there's a responsibility for the club to be able to communicate what what it is that they stand for so one about the sense of purpose, but also about the kind of behaviours that they value amongst their players. Because then I think what that does is um, it allows you to, uh, to recognise when the results might not be right, but the way in which you're trying to get there is. So there's a really good example that, um, that, that Guardiola uses, and, and, and I mention it in the book, where he talks about this idea of putting the team first. And there was a guy called uh, uh, Cater. He was a Malian midfielder. And um, when they got to the to Guardiola's first European Cup final in 2009, they had an injury crisis at the back. And, and they asked Cater if he would play uh, in the team at fullback. And Cater went to him and said, he said, I can play there, but there are better alternatives than me. And he said, so can I urge that you pick somebody else rather than pick me in that position? And he went and had that conversation knowing that if he didn't agree to play in that position, he wouldn't be in the squad at all. And Guardiola uses that almost as a, as a really powerful example of a guy that was prepared to sacrifice his own personal um, uh, needs for the betterment of the team. And he uses that almost as a, as a copper-bottom example of what, of what that looks like. Now, that's the kind of things that... that Fans would never see that that's the kind of conversations that happen internally. But I think the teams have a responsibility to almost share what they stand for to the fans. So then when decisions that might look a little bit confusing or you say, what did they drop them for? Or why is he in the team? If you can understand the behavioural lens by which the coaches are viewing them, not just about picking them on the basis that, they're the fastest, the fittest, the strongest, the best. But also it's about how they behave day after day in that working environment that the fans don't see. I think that's where greater understanding comes from. And do you think, I mean, do, do you sort of get a sense in the, the sort of work you've done um, sort of uh, in the past and uh, that players appreciate sort of honesty for fans or do they sort of respond better to sort of almost undying support? You know, what, what it, you know, I mean, we are sort of just thinking, is it that, as clubs become more successful, fans start expecting more. And do you know, what, what, what is it that players respond to, do you think, in terms of performance? Is it honesty or is it that, you know, support? Um, it's an interesting one because um, I'm not sure necessarily that, um, I mean, if I think about uh, through a football lens, I think when I've worked in football, uh, the relationship with the fans there seems a little bit more, uh, a little bit more confused. And what I mean by that is that uh, I think they don't really pay too much attention 
to what the fans will say about them unless it un, um, unless it crosses a line. And what I mean by that is just the sheer noise and volume, say like at the elite levels of, of football, mean that you'd drive yourself crackers if you did spend too much time worrying about what the fans were saying about them, you know, like the volume of messages on social media and mm. things like that. Um, so I'm not sure how much attention uh, they really pay to that. In terms of my experience working in rugby, um, the fans uh, and the players seem a little bit closer. And I and therefore, I think what, what players appreciate there is, 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 is just an appreciation of the factors that are within their control. So when, players can, uh, so when fans can recognise a player is working hard or he's still demonstrating courage, even though things might not be going right for him, or he's playing um, a role in doing the small things that, uh, that most people wouldn't necessarily recognise. I think when they appreciate it, when fans can recognise that, rather than just getting blinded by tries or the, or the more spectacular things, I think they appreciate fans recognising the more subtle nuances that, um, that, that almost define what a character is. Yeah. Yeah, and and in terms of character in rugby, it's it's interesting because you've you've obviously worked with with different teams, um, and rugby has this almost internal reputation, I think, of being a gentleman sport, and in some quarters sees itself as superior to to football in terms of behaviours. I mean, have you found that in terms of cross rugby teams that that there is a difference in behaviours and cultures, or is it just the same sort of challenges uh, as any other sport? Um. I wouldn't say like you're still dealing with people, regardless of of the industry or the sport that we're talking about, Cammy. So, I, so I wouldn't um, I wouldn't be so quick to draw too many differences between uh, football, for example, uh, and rugby. I think speaking to people that have been um, in rugby for a lot longer than what I've been working, I think they uh, they can recognise some of the creep towards some of the challenges that professional football have been experiencing for a long time, uh, starting to uh, creep into rugby clubs. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, from what I understand it, uh, when rugby was uh, was amateur, you had players that were naturally doing professional jobs and, and then committing to come to training uh, in their own spare time, whereas now you get that early professionalisation. So kids will join academies and then come through and be professional sports players, having never done a job outside of their sport. And I think what that can sometimes lead to is uh, just um, a lack of roundedness in some cases. Mm. Um, and that's nobody's fault, but it's just the idea that uh, of, 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 of having to sort of mind your language or having to be respectful of differences and things like that, uh, that naturally the workplace forces you to learn quite quickly might happen a, um, a little bit slower but I wouldn't say there's a massive difference and uh, in my experience uh, between football and rugby I think ultimately you're dealing with uh, with people and you're dealing with very specific cultures you know I've been in some football clubs where the cultures are very respectful and the standards are very high similar to what the perception is of rugby but equally, I've been into some rugby environments where the environment has been toxic um, and the kind of um, perceptions that you might have around football. So 
yeah, I'd say it's very specific and unique to each situation rather than uh, going to those gem, uh, general ideas. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's just interesting to speak to someone that's obviously worked in, in, in lots of different sports because I think sometimes rugby has that um, sort of bubble of pomposity that sometimes um, in certain sections right. sometimes needs to be popped on occasions. Um it's been really interesting speaking to you, Damien. The the last thing we're doing um, with everyone we're interviewing this season is is asking a random question, if you're up for it. Yeah, definitely. Go on. Yeah, choose a number between 1 and 100. Oh, I've got uh, 75. 75. Let's have a look. Um, oh, it's a good one. Um, you are on. in B&Q when um, it announces a zombie apocalypse and you're allowed to take one item to fight your way home. What do you choose? <laughs> um... I'd probably choose um, a, uh, let's say, um, a power drill because I think if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down fighting. So uh, <laughs> I'll <laughs> I'll probably get one of those cordless power drills and at least have a go at defending myself on the way back. That's an excellent choice. Um, now you're in Edinburgh. Is it on the fifth of September to in Waterstones? I've got the date right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, and, uh, with the book coming out, it came out a couple of weeks ago. The Barcelona way. So um, um, I'm doing a few different book events and uh, I'm doing one up in Edinburgh on uh, the 5th of September. So it's at Waterstones. I think it's about half past six, seven o'clock, the event where I'll be talking in more detail around some of the ideas behind it. So if any of your listeners fancy coming along, it'd be lovely to meet them and uh, I'm happy to chat in more detail. Lovely. We'll put the link on that to the blog. So if you um, log on to the blog, the podcast page on the blog, that'll be on there. Uh, Damien, thank you very much for speaking to us. Oh, it's been a real pleasure, Cammy. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate your, your incisive questions as well. Okay, uh, we're joined now by uh, Berwick Rugby Club team manager, Owen Weatherhead. Uh, welcome to the show, Owen. Uh, very good to be here. Um, first of all, the question we always ask anybody uh, when they come on the podcast is uh, what club socks did wear if they were selected for the Barbarians? But I'm guessing that's a straightforward choice for you, is it? Oh, just Berwick. Berwick through and through. Um, but and your team manager for Berwick, um, I was just wondering what what does that involve apart from making sure everyone turns up when they're supposed to? Well, it just takes the uh, pressure off for coach Colin Young and his assistant Paul Pringle. Uh, I just do all the like admin work, making sure all the paperwork's filled in, all the players know what time we're meeting, uh, all call offs come through me, so it just kind of lets. Colin and Paul concentrate on the green grass, you know, I have to deal with everything else, they just concentrate on the green grass side of it. And I was just wondering about the paperwork, um, I remember years ago speaking to Jimmy Crease, the old Berwick Rangers manager, and him saying that when they signed players locally, they had to get international clearance, do you have any problems like that in Berwick with paperwork and getting players registered? No, no, nothing like that. Um Obviously, your brother, Gareth, he's just went away down to Tyndale. But as Berwick's affiliated with both the RFU and the SRU, we don't have any issues with that. Like, uh, It's all pretty straightforward. Good. And and you're in pre-season at the moment. Uh, how's that going? Oh, it's been going really well. Um, numbers has been excellent all throughout the since we started. I think it was the first week in July, the first Tuesday. Uh, numbers have been really good. The boys are working hard. Uh, they're playing the tens tournament tonight, which is a lot of the boys' first uh, hit out. Uh, so we'll just see how that goes. 
up at Hoike. Unfortunately, I can't be there, so I don't know how it's going at the minute. But yeah, it's been a good start to the season. And how does pre-season go for a, for a club like Berwick? Because you're in East One. Um, so d- you said that's been going for the, since the end of, end of July, your pre-season? Yeah, start of July we started. Start of July, so six weeks now. So what, what sort of things do you do? Is it just sort of going through drills or is there a bit of strength and conditioning in there as well? I think uh, there's a lot of it's game-orientated stuff that we do now. Um, the lads, there's a gym at the rugby club, uh, so the lads use that on a Monday and a Wednesday night, which is quite popular nights with them. Um, and a lot of the training on a Tuesday and Thursday is like game orientated stuff because we feel like having spoke with Colin and Paul, the, the days are making people run and run and run. It's gone, you know, they want ball in hand, they want to have a bit of fun. So that's basically the way we've went with our pre-season this year. A lot of game-orientated stuff, making sure the boys are having fun, but they are still working hard. Um, and there's a lot of sweating, you know, a lot of hard work going in, but it's all like game-orientated, so it's enjoyable for them as well. I mean, that's quite a modern take. Do you think that is the idea then that that translates to the pitch, that if they're running through this sort of stuff, game-orientated things, that they can then think on their feet a bit more when they come to play the game? Yeah, I think that's where it's come from. You know, you want them to be able to think fast on the on their feet and to to be able to solve problems on the pitch themselves without Colin and Paul or myself having to say, "Oh, look, you're doing this wrong." You know, we're trying to get this into the system that you know that they are thinking for themselves and doing it that way. And and this year you've got a new captain. Obviously, um, you you lost. Um... You lost my brother Gareth, who'd, who'd been there for a few years. Um, how does that? Is that something sort of um, you get involved in? Is sort of helping the new captain settle in and sort of exert his authority, so to speak? Well, I mean, it it, it is quite a tough one because Gareth was captain for five years. You know, he was such a huge part of the club, and the boys all loved having him around. Um, so it is going to be quite tough for Tom Jackson, who is the new captain, but. You know, Tom's been around a long time as well, and the boys like like Tom as well. So I don't think it'll be an issue. Um, Tom will just set his own mark, and that'll be it. Uh, he's quite a straightforward guy. You know, he just tells you how it is. You'll listen to ideas and that, but, you know, ideally it's going to be his final call on the pitch, and we, everyone's just got to respect it and move on now. And and how's the team looking for this season? You've you've managed to get um, Andrew Skeen, former Scotland Sevens player, back to the club. How did you manage that? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, well, I you don't <laughs> like kind of chasing Andrew for to come back to the club where it all started from him for the last four or five years, you know. And he's always promised to it. He, he, that was one thing he always said. He said, "We'll finish my career at Berwick and." Uh, I think that probably the time's now right for him to come along. And I think you've seen the youth that we've got coming through. And maybe that was a sell to him and thought, oh, you know, I'll just go and help these young ones progress a little bit further and help Colin and Paul move on with our coaching as well. So it's brilliant to have him here. Um, and he's got such a wealth of experience and, and he's a great guy with it. Like So that's a, that's a bit of a bonus as well. And the last couple of years as well, you've managed to retain a lot of the youngsters from your youth system coming through to the first team. How how have you managed to do that? I think with this group of players, um, 
obviously there's, there's Jack Webster and Tom Riddle and Tommy McCall who are pretty tight as, as a group um, and a few others, Jamie Pick in there as well. But this young this young group that came through the Colts together just uh, last year, I mean, 10, 11 of them, you know, they go on holiday together, they go everywhere together. And I think it's just the fact they just want to play alongside their mates, like, you know, and and that that's what it's all about for them, just playing alongside their mates, having a bit of fun, having a beer on a Saturday night and enjoying each other's company Tuesday, Thursday at training as well. And and how, I mean, for a club like Berwick, there's a lot of clubs across Scotland, you know, struggling with, to pull out even first and second teams, but Berwick uh, seem to be in, in, in fairly good health for numbers. And you've got Andrew Skeen coming back. You've had guys, you might still have guys sort of travelling distances to come to training and play games for you. What, what What is it about Berwick that, you know, you, you get guys sort of wanting to come and play? Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. I think we're just... We're very welcoming, you know, we're a good bunch of boys and, you know, we'll welcome anybody into our club and uh, as long as they're sociable, you know, we take our rugby serious, but, you know, we also have a lot of fun off the pitch as well as a group. Um, so that's mainly what I would say, but I, mean, I don't know, you know, to get people to come to Berwick, I think you just got to want to enjoy yourself, you know, we don't pay, we never have done, never will do, you know, that is, that's it always been the way and it'll never change as long as I've got anything to do with the club and uh, so like I say just come along enjoy yourself and enjoy your beer and that's what it's all about like yeah and and have the have the team set any targets this year or is it just a case of try and push push as far hard as you can in East 1 and, and, and maybe for the is it the Shield you're in when they're in the Shield yeah um, ideally you'd want to say win the league you know because I think they're a year older a year wiser well, I don't know about the wise a bit, but yeah, definitely a year older. Um, I think winning the league has to be right up there with our goals. And that'll be spoke about in the next couple of weeks, you know, by leading up to the first league game away at Barnton. Um, and, and the shield has to be something we're targeting. You know, a trip to Murrayfield for some of the boys. We didn't get to do it for Gareth in his last year at the club, but would like to do it for these youngsters, you know, give them something to build on. But they, they, they were obvious goals, like. And and um, you've got you're back in the same league as as Duns now. I think Duns Duns got promoted. Is that is that sort of a boost to Berwick having that local rivalry back and and getting the regular game against them? Uh, Duns won the league last year as well. I've been in for a couple of years. Um, well, that's that's me. Is, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, it is the Berwick Duns derby. I mean, it'll always be a special day for both clubs. You know, it's a chance to fill your club in a pre-match lunch. Hopefully, get a big crowd in and, and fill your bar after the game. So it's very important for each home club. Um, and they're great days as well. You know, and uh, two teams going hammer and tong. And I don't know if it's enjoyable to watch for me. You know, I get a bit nervous because I don't like losing derby games. But you know, uh, yeah, it's good to have them. Then it's a good rivalry to have. Uh, lovely. Um, Owen, uh, lastly, um, we're doing a new thing this season on the podcast, um, which is uh, our random questions. So uh, do you want to choose a number between 1 and 100? Uh, 50. 50, okay. Um, yeah. Do all dogs go to heaven? No. No, no case. Because <laughs> Jack Russell's are evil little things. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that on that bleak note, Owen, thank you very much for joining us, uh, and hopefully we'll try and catch up with the club later on in the season. 
Uh, okay, um, we're joined by Lana Skeldon, uh, the Watsonians women's vice captain. Uh, Lana, when we have someone on the podcast for the first time, we always ask what socks they'd wear if they were selected for barbarians. And, and you're from Hoik, so would you go with one Watsonians, one Hoik? Um, I'm unsure, to be honest, because I've played for that many different teams. But yeah, I'd probably, probably would. At, at this kind of moment, I would anyway, yeah. Yeah, um... And um, when we last spoke to um, we spoke to Emily Cotterell, the, the last season's captain, as part of our Silver Saturday preview, um, and and you were the only team that we interviewed that uh, for that day that didn't win. So what happened? Um, well, last year for us it was a massive building season. We didn't really expect to make it to the final because, like I say, it was the first year in the Premiership, so we were just building towards staying up and enjoying the season but when we made it to the final we knew it was going to be a big ask. Uh, Hillhead have got a very strong team but um, yeah I think it was just the case of taking the positives from the game but yeah in the end I think we're just outclassed a little bit um, but we did play some really good rugby but they just had there were just too many strong players on their side that we just couldn't manage to keep out unfortunately. Yeah, that's. I mean, Emily had said last season that that you were that was your building season. Um, are you in better shape? Do you think going into this season? Uh, yes, definitely. We've had really good numbers down at pre-season, and we've managed to keep hold of everybody from last year. So we're looking to just continue on from where we left last season, and hopefully, be uh, another season of wins. Hopefully. And and what what has pre-season involved for the club? Um, so we've done a lot of like fitness work, skills work. We've um, there's been a couple of team socials, just getting that bonding back in, and uh, yeah, we've been working hard on our skills and fitness. And as we transition through into the season now, it's becoming more team-based kind of stuff. And it's been really positive. We've had really good numbers each week at training, so it's been good. And a lot of new people down, or is it just sort of consolidating the squad that you already had? Um, we've had a lot of newbies uh, this year. Some people who have moved up here from down south or just somebody that's wanted to try the game um, a, a real variation but it's really good for the club to have so many people coming along from all aspects so it's been yeah, it's a really positive start to the season And um, your vice-captain this season is this your first season as vice-captain? Uh, it's my first season as vice-captain at Watsonian um, I was captain and vice-captain at Melrose when I played there, but yeah, this is my first season as vice-captain at Watsonians. And, and so what's what's your role as vice-captain then? Um, so it's just to assist uh, Nicola Nightingale as she's captain um, and making sure that the team sticks together and obviously stepping in if Nicola's not there. Um, just really to make sure that all the newbies are welcomed in and just a leadership role in to be an example for everybody else to follow on for. Yeah, and, and in terms of your pre-season, um, has that been different for you personally? Because you've signed a contract with the SRU, so are you training elsewhere outside of the normal club training sessions? Uh, yes, I'm based with the Fosrock Academy, so I'm based in the borders. So I've been doing pre-season with the academy, which has been pretty intense, to be honest, but it's been really good. Working on much the same, just fitness and skills and a little bit of weight training, but yeah, it's been very positive. And you say it's been intense. Does this th- this be your first pre-season doing something like that? Has it been has it been hard, or have you enjoyed it? I've really enjoyed it. Like it's really challenged me in certain aspects. Um, obviously, training alongside some of the boys, 
Um, but yeah, no, it's been it's really been really good. Really enjoyed it. Um, and and have the have Watsonians as a team set any targets for this season? Um, I don't think we're really setting any targets as such. Uh, I know that when speaking to Nicola, that one of our sort of goals, I suppose, is to finish in the top four this year and hopefully to make it to another cup final. But we're just um, looking to see how the team gets on and just enjoy ourselves. Really, first first and foremost is to enjoy ourselves and make sure everyone's part of the team. And and there's a new structure this season um, for the for the women's game. You've got I think you're at the, the league between now and December. Then then the cup competition before this before moving into sevens. Do you, do you think that's going to help clubs like Watsonians to sort of keep players and, and maintain your squads? Uh, yeah, I think it will because it's obviously like it's a new structure, so it's like pretty well set out in that players will get a break um, after the league and then move into the cup and then into sevens, but I think the structure is, like, it allows players to get that break from it, because I think sometimes the league, I think there's some clubs last year, the league went on until, like, May, and that's just a really long season, considering it starts in August, so it's really good that they've segregated the league to finish before Christmas, and then move into the cup, I think it's good that that's split there. Um, and and I saw um, at the club um, the, the the last Saturday as, as we record this, you had a taster session for girls aged ten to seventeen. How how did uh, that go? Did you get a lot of numbers down for that? Um, unfortunately, I wasn't there because I was away on a rugby force day. Um, but the feedback I've had from everyone involved was that it was a really good day, um, and. Again, just increasing numbers each each time I have these events, so it's really good. And, and you were the, were you at the Borders College last Friday running something sort of similar for was under 18s and under 17s? Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was like the Borders uh, girls launch day, so it, yeah, it was under 15 and under 18 girls like just came along, had a session to see how they got on and gave them some information about training that's available and things like that. So it was really good to get there was really good numbers there, so. Positive. Yeah, that's really good. And and what about yourself? Have you set yourself any sort of personal targets this season? Um, just to be involved in everything that I can be. Um, in terms of what Sonians, just leading from the front and making sure, like I said, everyone enjoys themselves. Because sometimes when you're in the Premiership, you can get caught up in the competition, and sometimes. Players lose interest because they're there for a more social sort of um, environment, which is it's good to have that mixture within the team. So for me, it's just setting that example and making sure that everyone's feeling welcome and there's a place for everyone in our team. So that's the, the, the way we want to be approached. Um, the, the the last lastly, what we're doing when we interview anyone this uh, season on the podcast is we're asking random questions. So um, if you want to go at this, do you want to choose a number between one and a hundred? Uh, okay, uh, let's have a look. Okay, what's your favourite Tom Hanks movie? Oh, Tom Hanks. I'm trying to think what he's like. I don't really watch that many movies. <laughs> uh, hmm. But actually, I don't know because I don't really watch much that he's in, unfortunately. What, Toy Story? Yeah, I suppose, yeah, Toy Story, that's a good one, yeah. 
good, good show. I've in the past, but I'll take place on it, yeah. <laughs> very good. Uh, well, thanks very much for speaking to us, Lana, and uh, good luck for the season. Thanks very much. That's it from us this week. Um, don't forget to visit the blog, scottishrugbyblog.co.uk. Find us on Twitter, at Cammy Black or at Scott Rugby Blog. We'll be back next week with the first full episode. Um, so please do get in touch with us with your Where's Doogie Donnellys and your uh, Hands in the Ruck. Um, we've had one in already uh, for, to, from everyone's favourite bus driver, Ian Wallace, who said he spotted Scott Hastings in Bristol Place uh, and also thinks he saw John Beatty at the Tron as well. Uh, that's it from us anyway for this week. Do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>